Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you all this morning in worship. And if you are a guest with us, welcome. We are happy and we are glad that you are here this morning. And if this is your first Sunday with us here at Eastside, it may be helpful for you to know a little bit about where we're at. Um, a few weeks ago, we launched into a new teaching journey as a church. And if you came in the doors off Moreland, then you saw two of our three banners, what they had to say. The third banner struggling just a little bit. The wind had its way with it last week, but we're going to hopefully get that fixed. But we're in the midst of a journey that is based on the Apostle Paul's, uh, just a simple line actually, from one of the Apostle Paul's letters to one of his ancient churches. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that many scholars believe was actually one of the healthier New Testament church communities. And Paul in this prayer has this, this beautiful line, this breathtaking line that says, church, be rooted and be grounded in love. He's exhorting this ancient community to continue in the way, to be rooted, to be grounded in love. And it doesn't take a literary scholar to recognize the reality that in this very short phrase here, Paul has already utilized two metaphors, not just one. The first metaphor, of course, being that of organics, rootedness, roots growing deep into soil, and grounded, an architectural metaphor, speaking to buildings that have solid, strong foundations from which to build upon. And the way we've decided to sort of enter into this journey to tackle it is to begin with the first of these metaphors, that of rootedness. And the way that we're doing this is we're using rootedness as a way of looking at our own lives as individuals, as individual people out in the world who are seeking to follow the way of the Christ. What does it look like for us to be a people who are rooted? We're using this language of organics, of plant growth, of new life, of health, of leaves, of branches, of stumps, of fruit ultimately, and we're turning the metaphor back on our own lives and asking questions about where we are in this. I don't know if any of you are visual people, but I'm a very, very visual learner. And when speaking to the spiritual life, and I'm going to say a little bit more about this in the message, sometimes it can be hard for us to mentally wrap our minds around exactly what is being spoken of because spirit is by nature not visible to the naked human eye. So when we speak of spirit, it can be challenging. Which is why I hope that the metaphor that Jesus employs in this morning's reading can be a helpful way for those of you who are like me and are visual learners who learn well from metaphors and things that I can picture in my mind. I hope that this is a helpful text for you as we unpack it, as we explore it together, as we think about what it looks like for us as individual human beings on this journey with the Christ to find ourselves deeply rooted and thus growing in healthy and rich and full ways. So friends, without further introduction, as you're able, if you would, please stand with me. Our reading this morning comes from the Holy Gospel according to John, the 15th chapter, where we encounter Jesus speaking these words to his disciples, I am the true vine, my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. 
You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Friends, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, God of new life, God who is always bringing something new into existence in our world and in our lives. On this morning, God, may you water, may you fertilize, may you nourish, may you be sunlight, may you do for each and every one of us in this room what we need to do the next right thing to make the next move of growth, of transformation, of new life in line with what it is you will for our lives and for this world. God, may these words that I have prepared be your word for your people in this time, and may you speak through them and, as necessary, speak in spite of me. And as I preach, God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts in this time and this place would indeed be right, good, pleasing, acceptable in your sight. God, who is our rock, our redeemer, our savior, our creator. All of this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus the Christ. And everyone said, amen. amen. Friends, you may be seated. Well, to be frank, it didn't dawn on me until... It was way too late to even think about moving to a different scripture passage that for some Atlanta homeowners who have the task of doing landscaping, this text might be a bit of a trigger. Um, it began to bring back memories of my own backyard. Uh, we had bought a foreclosed home and the landscaping had had nothing done to it in years and years and years. But we have these big old trees, which is great, right? Except the bigger the tree the more vines had grown up around them. And there was not a tree on our property that wasn't completely covered in these horrible vines. And I hear you thinking they're kudzu, but I was later corrected. They're, they were English ivy. And I'm really glad that at that point in our home's history, I had not yet installed security cameras because on a Saturday or, you know, on a weekday evening, I would be back there with my newly purchased hatchet from Lowe's and I would just be losing my mind on these vines because that's the only way to get them off is to literally go crazy on them. And for a, a good many a week, I cleaned those 
stupid vines off the bases of my trees so that they would not kill them, so that I would not have to pay ungodly amounts of money to get giant trees removed from my backyard. And I cannot tell you over the, the weeks that followed, watching all that greenery up and down my trees, watching it all turn brown in the middle of summer, brought me such joy. <laughs> Am I sadistic? I don't know, but it made me happy. For some, talking of vines and leaves and branches might be a bit of a trigger in our city, but thankfully Jesus, I don't think, even knew what kudzu was, probably, or English ivy. He's most likely talking about the kinds of vines that grow those lovely little fruits of green and purple color. He's probably talking about grapevines in vineyards, which is also what most likely would have been the image that would have popped into the minds of most of his listeners at that time. And I really like this text. I really, I really appreciate this text, this metaphor, because I think it's meant to help his disciples grab a hold of what can often be a challenging notion for us as human beings, this dimension to our humanity that our tradition speaks to. In this morning's scripture, Jesus talks of vines, branches, and fruit. And he's using this, this agrarian language of a vine. And he's doing it to help us wrap our minds around this, this pivotal reality to who we are as Christian people. I realize that by now in our rooted section of the series, I've made kind of an assumption that might be helpful this morning just to back up on a little bit. I've made kind of the assumption that when we talk about spirit, when we talk about there being a spiritual element to our lives or dimension to who we are, that everybody has the same idea in the room, that everybody has the same assumptions, that everybody has the same thoughts that they bring to the table. But upon further reflection and conversation, I realize that's really not the case. We may all bring different notions of what spirit means to this room. We might bring ideas from different branches of the Christian tradition, and what really occurred to me too is that for some, the idea of spirit isn't necessarily something that you even latch onto or believe. Some believe that the human body is essentially biological machinery, that that which we experience is the experience of chemicals in the brain making reactions, and we are simply sort of experiencing what our bodies do as a mechanism. But for some in the world, it might even be a hard idea to agree with or to even wrap our minds around that within us is some sense, some transcendent reality that we within the Christian tradition name as spirit. And my goal this morning is not to objectively prove to anyone in the room who struggles with the idea of spirit. That is not my role, and that is really not the role of anyone because the Christian idea and concept of spirit is not something that can be replicated or reproduced or even tested in a science lab. It's a subjective religious faith claim and reality that we experience subjectively as individual human beings in our lives through our own faith walk, through our own practice of our faith. So this morning, my, my aim isn't to convince anyone that we are indeed people who embody spirit, but to maybe offer some avenues to try it out, to test, 
to experiment with your own experience of who you are as a human being. To get at the Christian understanding of spirit, we really have to go back to the very beginning of our Bibles, to the book of Genesis, before there was even anthropology, the study of humanity, because there were no humans yet. You see, the beginning of the Bible does not begin with us, it does not begin with you, it does not begin with humanity, it begins with a divine reality, divinity, a divinity who in the early parts of Genesis have this kinetic sense to it, this idea of, of God, of this eternal one, but who's not happy to just sit idly by like some Stoic Greek manifestation of the divine. No, the God of the ancient Hebrew Bible is restless wants to share something, has something to bring forth. It's almost a God who can't sit still. We're told in the Hebrew that God in the ancient, in the beginning of the Bible, is sweeping across the face of the deep, almost like a winged creature of some kind, like wind. God is moving. God is kinetic at the very beginning. God is ordering and shaping. I almost picture an artist whose canvas is so large that they can't put it up on a wall, but they've got to crawl across it on their knees or hover over it as they're painting this landscape. The first God that we are introduced to in the beginning of our Bibles, what we first learn about God is that God is dynamic, God is moving, God is making. The ancient authors write that in the beginning when God created the heavens and earth, the earth was a formless Formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God, ruah in Hebrew, spread over the face of the waters. The earth was a formless canvas, and God travels across it to create something. Here's the thing, we're introduced from the very beginning and not of a God who is separate from the physical realm like many of us in our minds envision spirit and material today. We're, we're encountering a God who is quite intimate, quite working with the stuff of earth, the stuff of biology, the stuff of oil, of oil, of dirt and oil paint maybe, and clay. There's no division between God and the material realm at the beginning. The first image we get of God is of a maker, of an artist, of someone with a canvas with an aim to make something. And here's the thing. When these ancient authors come to the crowning point of this divine artist's dynamic work in making a world, the human race, what does the author not say about humanity? The author just says nothing about us being sinful or broken or imperfect or not right or not holy There's no language of original sin in Genesis 1. No. The text simply says, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. That's the first thing we learn about human beings, is that they are made in the image of the one we just watched creating. So God created humankind in his image, in the image of God he created them. Which I couldn't help but think about as I was preparing for the message this week, What would just happen if we took a year and just stopped with our Bibles right there and just lived with that text for a whole year? Didn't get to the fall, didn't go to the garden and all of that, but just stopped here for a minute and lived into the reality that what we know about God thus far is that God is creative, makes good things, and created human beings in God's image, and that is the crowning point of what God has made in the world. 
and that in some way we have a bit of the divine in each of us because we are made in the image of the one who made us. We are a people who existed in the mind of God before we were, the imagination of God before we existed in the realm of these bodies. We were an idea, and then we became physicality. Which is why most, if not all of you in this room, have the capacity to have an idea and then to bring it into reality. Whether you're an artist or an architect or a janitor, you can make things inside your mind happen outside of you because you're made in the image of the maker. You're made in the image of the orderer. You're made in the image of the one. As Christians in sync with our deep Jewish roots, we believe that human beings are much more than simply biological machines. We believe that God wove into our physical reality in some transcendent way, God's reality into our lives. The stuff of who you are is in some sense the stuff of who God is. Which then begs the question, of course, how does this challenge our notions of this separate mentality that material is over here and spirit is over here? As many of us have been taught, it seems like in the Genesis account, God's reality is something that's more woven into us. It's a reality that's within us. It's coexisting in our biology. It's not something that's sort of stamped on top of us. It doesn't seem to be the division that we imagine in much of spirituality in the modern world. It seems like flesh and spirit are so close together. It begs questions about, is it possible that the truest, the most real part of who we are, the dimension to each of us, that is more true than anything about us, is this transcendent reality of the divine in us, with us, through us? Which leads to another question, if our spiritual nature is not something separate from our bodies, but something integral to who we are, to our actuality and existence as the humans God created, what happens when we neglect it? If it's not just a side note, right, something God stamped on us after our bodies were made, oh, you're made in the image of God, now you get the divine stamp, you got the imprint. If it's something more woven and etched and worked through the entire fabric of who we are, what happens if we neglect that element of who we are? Let me put the question a different way. Can the spiritual dimension to our lives and to our being be neglected? Can it be starved? Can it be malnourished? I think you know where I'm going with this. If we are a combination of spirit, of matter, of biology, and spirituality made in the image of the divine in flesh, blood, and bone, then it would seem that our spirits could be neglected just like any other part of our body, any other part of our humanity. If I stop learning, then I'm starving my intellect. I can starve my body by not eating nutrient-rich meals, by living on Skittles and nerds. I can starve my muscles by failing to exercise or exercising really hard but not believing in protein. I don't eat that stuff. I can starve my emotional self by failing to address all of the 
the spectrum of emotion and feelings that I have, just stuff it all down. I can starve any part of my human reality by failing to nourish it. Any part of my humanity can become malnourished and unhealthy in a state of starvation. So the question really becomes, do we believe that spirit is an intricately woven part of our humanity? If your answer is yes, then the answer to the question is yes. You can absolutely starve your spiritual self. If the answer is no, that's a different conversation. But friends, as I said at the beginning of this series on the baptism of our Lord Sunday, we can only survive about a week without water before we, before we die. Many of us in this room, and studies have been shown to prove this factually, many in this room cannot go a morning without coffee. I'll post the, the research on the Facebook page later. <clears throat> but it does. It almost seems as though we take a better care of our caffeine fix than we do to the dimension of our humanity that we know is an essential part to who we are, our spiritual reality. The concept of starvation, of malnourishment, these aren't hard ideas for any of us to grasp. They're basic to our human existence and to our survival if I don't believe that protein sustains my muscles, therefore I don't see the importance of ever eating it, my muscles are going to suffer in spite of whether or not I believe in protein. If I don't believe water is necessary for my body, I'm still going to dehydrate and ultimately die. My beliefs about water's importance don't really matter. We can live our lives as though we do not believe there is a spiritual dimension to who we are. And we will experience the existential and the real life that comes with that belief. The Christian tradition maintains that this dimension that we call spirit transcendent, this divine aspect to our human existence is every bit as important, every bit as important as the strictly biological realities that we consist of. And I'm sure in a room like this, some of us have grown up kind of just simply taking the idea of spirit for granted. I mean, I know I, I was raised with language of, of spiritual almost to the point where I got pretty worn out on the word, frankly. So worn out on the word that I maybe didn't really think about it or use it for a long time. Probably to my own detriment, and maybe to some of the detriment of those in this room. Maybe you've heard the word spiritual so much, and in certain contexts that it's actually a trigger for you. It turns you off to that form of religion. I want to invite you to give spirit a revisiting. I want you to give a fresh eyes to maybe what for some of you is an old concept. A concept that maybe you were given certain categories and, and ways of understanding that maybe, maybe, just maybe, you need to unlearn and approach in some new and some fresh ways. For others of you, you may just really struggle with the idea that we are anything more than biological machines. And here's the thing, as I said at the outset, that's not something, this is not something that I can, I can prove to you in some kind of scientific way. The reality that God is, that, that you come from God, and that you have part of the essence of God etched into your being and into your existence, they're not science claims. They're faith claims. They, they don't conflict with science. But using the purely scientific method, it's not something that you can either confirm or deny. 
The reality is that you as an individual must make conscious choice to live into to see what happens in your life. And here's the thing, if you want to begin to experience your own self, your own life, your existence as a spiritual being, you have to begin practicing living into the kinds of ways of being that will revive, will wake up, will germinate the seed of the Spirit within you. Some of us are walking around, friends, so malnourished that we're practically in a comatose state. We have been starving for so long. Some of us in this room probably need a defibrillator. I had a friend tell me a few months ago, he said, Tim, I'm just spiritually dead inside. Just spiritually dead inside. Here's the thing, friends. You won't waste time feeding a part of yourself that you don't believe is actually a part of yourself. At least they don't suspect might be a part of yourself. If we don't believe that we're anything more than a biological machine, a highly advanced physiological computer responding to nothing more than chemical reactions firing in our brains, why waste time with the spiritual dimension? On the other hand, for those of us who agree to a faith claim that humanity is indeed made in the image of God, thus we have the DNA of the divine interwoven throughout our being and our consciousness. If we believe it, then how come many of us who claim to believe it don't actually live as though it's the case? Why don't we have practices, rhythms, rituals in place in our lives that nourish this dimension of our existence? Arguably the most important part of our dimension because it is the part of us that we believe is eternal, forever. Christians, why are we okay to feed our bodies but starve our spirits? Why are we okay to exercise our bodies, to go to a doctor but let our spirits lie dormant? We don't engage them in a way that is challenging, that causes the spiritual dimension within us to wake up, to get out of bed, to do as the text from Ephesians this morning said, arise, sleeper. Let the light shine on you and begin working those atrophying muscles. And please hear me, I don't, I don't write a sermon like this with some of these turns without being a person myself who is guilty of it. If you don't think ministers struggle with spiritual nourishment, I would just turn you to the healthcare professional and, and let you look at some studies on doctors and nurses. Those in the caring professions can be some of those who care the least for their own physical well-being, and the same is often true for clergy. Just because we know something, because we believe something, doesn't mean we have let it sink down into the way we practice, the way we live. Amen? There are lots of things you know about lots of things that if you made them real in your life, you would be living very, very differently today. text this morning is profound, it is powerful, and Jesus speaks directly to our spiritual health, and he uses this very harsh yet poignant metaphor of a vine and branches, and he pulls no punches. Now, if you've ever been to a vineyard, then you know that, that vineyards will often have multiple vines that are growing up, but the branches will start to interweave. So you have, you'll be, if you're picking, you might be picking from five different vines, though you're standing in one place. 
right? And as I was studying this text throughout the week, the image came into my mind, what if somebody came by with a, I don't know, like a wheelbarrow or a cart and just slammed it into the base of one of those vines and, and broke it to the point where no more nutrients could get through from the ground up into the base of the vine and into the branches. It wouldn't take in the hot sun but 24 hours. You would be able to look at that section of the, of the vineyard and know exactly which branches went with the broken vine because those leaves would begin to wither that fast in the hot sun. This is the point Jesus is trying to make with his disciples. You can literally be let next to one another in the same geography. One branch is thriving and growing fruit and another is withering and dying. What is going on here? What is happening? Where's your connection? To what are you connected? To how are you nourishing? If you're not big into the agrarian metaphors or you have something against vines... Think about an electric car. You have to charge it. It's, it's just obvious. But as obvious as it is, we don't do it in our own lives. We think that my spirit will be fine. It's resilient. And in reality, it's been in a coma for the last 10 years. Jesus says you can tell which branches belong to which vines. You can tell which branches are healthy by which vines to which they are attached. And healthy vines are deeply rooted in the soil. And those roots, they suck the water up, and the water brings the nutrients from the soil, and it goes all the way up to the base of the vine, out into the leaves, out into the branches, then to the leaves. I don't know about you, but when speaking of something that can feel so elusive and ethereal as human spirit or spirituality, this thing that we can't, spirit's invisible, when you anchor it in something so visible as a vine branches, a living branch next to a dead branch, it actually becomes more helpful for me being a visual person. So thank you, Jesus. In its simplicity, I am confronted by its profundity. A dead, disconnected branch right next to a connected branch that is growing and thriving and that is ultimately producing fruit. If a branch gets chopped off, even if it's still hanging there with the rest of the vines, it's going to dry out, it's going to die. And Jesus is looking his disciples dead in the eye and he's making a one-to-one correlation between their spiritual health and this organic image of the absolute necessity of the branches staying connected to the source of life. Christ says that he is the vine. Stay connected to him. He is the source of life. He is connected in his language to the Father. And connected connectedness to him will ultimately enable his disciples to bear fruit for the world. And as, as powerful of a metaphor as this is, I also believe that all metaphors have their limits, and I, I found a limit in this one this morning. The idea of a dead branch is a limit of this metaphor, because I do not believe that the spiritual dimension to any and in any human being ever fully dies, is ever completely extinguished. 
Because I believe that the image of God is a gift from God, and I believe that gifts from God, such as the image of God within us, is something that is woven into the fiber of our humanity, and that is an indelible gift from the Creator that cannot be snuffed out, no matter how ridiculous we may act or be or how ignorant we might live. Certainly, we can starve its growth through our lack of attention, our our refusal to water, to nourish this part of us. But unlike a branch that's been cut and is dead, I don't believe that you can kill the image of God inside of another human being. I don't believe it can be destroyed. I believe there's always a seed that is waiting to be planted. There's always something waiting to germinate and to spring forth into something new. So this morning, some of you may feel spiritually dead inside. Some of you may feel spiritually ambivalent inside. Some of you may feel agnostic towards the general idea of spirit inside. But friends, I believe that the gift of spirit is the most resilient part of the human creation. I believe that the gift of spirit in us is actually more powerful and more poignant, more transcendent, and more profound than even our physicality. I have a friend right now who just got uh, really hard news about his cancer treatment and diagnosis. And as I follow this friend on social media and I see the things that he writes as a man of incredible faith, it is humbling to see a human being with a physical body that is getting bad news time and time again, yet the deep resilience of his spirit that you can see flowing through his words and his essence into the universe. It's humbling, it's inspiring, and it is, it is walking for me, walking evidence to the power of the spirit that God has implanted within us if we are but willing to tend to it, nourish it, and make it grow. Our bodies may fade away, but our spirits may be strong, resilient, and powerful. So may this morning, may we be The audience Paul writes to in the book of Ephesians, may we be sleepers who are awakened. Maybe this morning some of us are ready. We're ready for a spiritual awakening. We've heard what has been said and we're we're ready. It's time. You have felt this nagging disease inside for a long time and you're ready for something to happen inside of you. You want to connect to the vine. You want to do it differently. But as I said last Sunday, it bears repeating. We cannot simply desire physical health and agility and hope that the next morning we wake up with a six-pack. We'll be able to run six miles that we haven't ran in five years. Hope is important, but it's not the final strategy. Hope paired with action and conscious effort, methodical rhythm, ritual, change of the way that we are in the world, that is what will ultimately bear changed lives. We can't just want our cholesterol to be lower and then wake up the next morning hoping that we're healthier. Many of us need to develop and incorporate new rhythms, routines, rituals in the way we live our lives if we're serious about nourishing the spiritual dimension to who we are. And here's the thing, it's not going to be one church service. It's not going to be one meditation session. It's not going to be one time attempting to read your Bible or write in a prayer journal. It's not going to be one time, just like one attempt at the elliptical is not going to all of a sudden fix all of your health problems. 
It's a month, two months. It's changing the entire pattern of behavior that will slowly but surely change your life. It's like going to therapy. Almost nobody's fixed at their first therapy session. Breakthroughs come when you're faithful and you keep going day in, day out, week in, and week out. I would argue that the same is true of our spiritual dimension. If we want to experience transformation, it's going to require a long, determined obedience in the same direction. So what does that mean? I give you three thoughts, three very short ideas to take with you. When it comes, if you have a desire to, to go out and revive, to awaken, to do something new to engage the spiritual side of you, I would say adopt three things, three practices. One is individual. Do something every day. And I know that it's a sacrifice for the many parents in the room to get up a little bit early or to stay up a little bit late to be alone. But there is something about getting by yourself even for five to ten minutes every single day for some of you, it's not even to do anything. It's just to sit and listen and be and let your mind just be. Maybe you'll hear something from God, maybe not. But sometimes there's just something profound about sitting in silence in the dark. No kids are crying, no TV's on, there's no phone nearby. Maybe it's that simple, but... but Three things. The first one is you as an individual find something. Do it every day. Do it over your lunch break. Stay up a little bit later before the kids go to bed. I offered a couple thoughts last week. There's the rule that you can apply. You can work through the rule every night. You could pray or journal. You could read a passage of scripture. Do something. You can meditate. Second thing is find something weekly with a group. That's one of the main reasons that we offer core groups here at Eastside, but find a smaller community of people. Maybe it's a meditation group. Maybe it's a core group here at Eastside. Maybe it's a recovery group. But find some group that you can sit with and you can talk with and you can be human with and you can reflect on and decompress and do life with. That can be a spiritual experience. For some, it may just be a simple Bible study. And then finally, y'all are doing the third corporate. There's something about the gathered body together, and I was with my sister-in-law the other night, who was also a United Methodist minister, and I was telling her a little bit about this series that we're on, and she said, you know sequoia trees? And I was like, well, I've never actually been to a sequoia forest, but tell me. And she did, and she said, they, they have these deep roots, but they're so big and they're so heavy, the only way that they can stay up is by their roots intertwining with one another. They, don't, they can't stay up by themselves because they're so huge and so heavy they have to grow next to one another. I was like, that's church. That's rooted. The Western world, we want to so individualize our faith practice. Our, we, you know, lone, go lone on our religious practice. And there's a, that there needs to be a part of this that is just you alone. But it can't just be you alone. It needs to be you in community with other people, growing roots together because you can hold one another up, we can hold one another up. Individual, every day, find something, do something. Gather with a group once a week, core group, small group, recovery group, Bible study, just find something, men, men or women's prayer breakfast. 
and gather and worship with a group of people who are all seeking, in some sense, that same goal of spiritual awakening, of spiritual growth, of spiritual nourishment, and make it a pattern of behavior, make it normal, make it a routine, and don't expect everything to change overnight, because it won't. But one day you're going to wake up and say, wow, what happened? At least that's what I hope happens for each and every one of us. Amen? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.